If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're looking at what some believe is uh, one of the uh, songs of the early church. We're looking at one of the longest sentences in the book of Ephesians. It's one long continuous sentence. In um, our English Bibles, they've broken it down into verses. But before there were verses, it was one long continuous sentence. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. And let's this, this read uh, the first four verses of our passage. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight question for you this morning how many of you consider yourself to be rich okay okay how many people consider themselves to be rich many people in our world they they pursue riches and that's their goal that's their aim i want to make more money i want to go after money and it's fleeting it's passing and it's also a temptation for us believers. And the Apostle Paul is going to remind us this morning in our text that the greatest treasure in the universe is knowing Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus Christ. I want you to fill in the blank, okay? I'm going to give you four statements and you fill in the blank. If only I owned If only I owned, what would it be? That boat, that car, that whatever it would be. If only if I owned that, that would give me joy. That would give me pleasure. I would find fulfillment in it. If only I lived in, you name the city. If only, how about this one? If only I looked like, fill in the blank. How about this one? This is, this is one that, it gets us all. If only I had, and you named the dollar amount. If I only had a million dollars. If only I had money. A lot of times that's the way we think in life. But we're going to be taken back to the truth this morning in Scripture, in the Word of God. And we're going to see that some of those things are valuable and, and, and we need them in life. But we're going to be taken back in Scripture this morning to show that, to, to see this, that tr Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in our life. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have everything. You have everything. You wouldn't know it, though, by, re by reading this text. But Paul's in prison. Paul's in prison. And he's not focused on what's going on on the outside. Paul was in prison twice. At the very end of the book of Acts, He's put on house arrest for two years where he's guarded. 
do we, do we believe he was released for a couple years, did some more ministry, and then he was placed in a dungeon in what they call the maritime prison. But you would not know him being in a dungeon or in a prison based on his writings. Why? Because he wasn't looking on the outside. His heart was completely enraptured with the Lord Jesus Christ. With the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you have the wealth of Christ in your life, my friend, it is better than the lottery. You have hit pay dirt. You have the ultimate lottery. Donald Trump can't touch you. And all his millions, if you have Christ, he's looking up to you, saying, wow, look at what that person has. He has Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So the title of my message this morning is this, the greatest treasure is Christ. The, the greatest treasure in this life is being a believer in Jesus and having him in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Now, Lord, as we look at it, I pray, God, that you just guide us, direct us, and let us leave here today, Father, knowing that you are the greatest treasure, that we have you, we have everything. And, Lord, when we seek you first in your kingdom and you fill our hearts with yourself, you take care of all those things on the outside, but we don't find our, we don't find our, um, our, our passion, we don't find our fulfillment in those things, but we find our fulfillment in you. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul sees this, I'm in heavenly places with Christ, is what consumed his heart. you got to remember, when he wrote this, if you go look at the last two verses in the book of Acts, it says Paul was put on house arrest in prison, and he was under a guard. That was when he wrote this. He wrote this, and he wasn't looking at the outside. He was looking on the inside, and he was looking at his relationship with God. you got to remember, Paul was taken to Rome because of the gospel, because supposedly he was breaking the law, and he was causing a disturbance. Their goal in Jerusalem was to, put, was to stomp Christianity out. To bring it to an end. And they thought to do that, we got to get rid of Paul. So they send Paul to Rome. But, what is Paul, but how does Paul view that? Paul says in Philippians, he says, because of my imprisonment at Rome, the gospel is now in Rome. He would say at the end of the book of Philippians that because of his imprisonment, many within the, the praetorium of the, of the guard palace had gotten saved. 300 years after this, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman world, and it all started here when Paul was in prison, and he preached Christ. Look at verse 4, the greatest treasures. Here we go, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will. Number one, the first blessing of being in Christ, the reason number one, the greatest treasure of being in Christ is because you are chosen. You are chosen. You did not wander into Christianity. There's no such thing as chance. God 
and his omniscience, the Lord Jesus Christ in his omniscience, had his eye on you. It says right there, it says, he chose us, verse 4. He chose us. And then he nails it down even more, before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15, 16, saying this, making the same point. He says, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Jesus chose you, the omnipotent, almighty creator of the universe, from eternity into time, reached down, and he chose you. When? What does verse 4 say? It says, he chose you before the foundation of the world. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know how to preach that. That's, that's beyond human understanding, okay? That, that's beyond our understanding. But, but he's God. That's what makes the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit God. Is they're God. And they have that ability. But that before time began, he had you on his mind. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And the purpose in verse 4, he says, to be holy and blameless before him. Now, how do we become holy and blameless? How do we become holy and blameless before God? By accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He dwelling inside of us, him being our righteousness, is what ultimately makes us holy and blameless. It's not our deeds, it's not our actions, it's not what we do, but it's him dwelling on the inside that makes us holy and blameless. And I love I like that word, love, because how verse 4 and verse 5, look at the word, the two words that tie verse 4 and verse 5. You could apply it to before or after. But what was the mechanism of this choosing is what I'm getting at. He says at the end of verse 4, in love, in love, God loved you and he chose you before the foundation of the world. His love predated creation, and in his love he chose you. That was one of the attributes of God. One of the attributes of the Trinity was his love. And he extends that love to those he has chosen. And I love verse 5. I love verse 5. As I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and looking at verse 5, the thing that comes to my mind is this. What does every child that's adopted needs? When a child is brought into foster care by, by a family or adopted, what does that child need more than anything, because Paul's going to use the, the word adoption in verse 5. They need love, and they need acceptance, and they need healing. Look at verse 5, and let's tack on the last two words, because if you notice at verse 4, before it says, in love, there should be a period. So actually, the end of verse 4 goes with verse 5, after that period. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intentions of his will. He's adopted us. He's adopted us. He's transferred us. We were under the domain of Satan. We were living in darkness. We were broken. We were sinners. And he picked us up. And he brought us into the family. And he adopted us. And as, an, as a child that's been adopted or, or in foster care or, or is being taken care of, more than anything, he shows us love. He shows us acceptance. We're going to see that more in this passage as he says we are accepted in the beloved. But we're accepted. We are adopted. Now, let's, let's look at this word. because This is the one I asked for you all to pray for me last week as I, I dove into it. Predestination. 
we read passages like this and you're like, oh boy, predestination. Now, listen, there are godly men that are on both sides on this subject. But my goal is not to go to the left or right, but to go with what the Word of God says. You know, I am no disciple of John Calvin. I'm no disciple of Jacob Arminius. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where the, where the, what the Word says is where we're going to stay and what we're going to plant and, and, and what we're going to believe concerning um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. But predestination means to decide beforehand to decree from all eternity. And to that I say yes and amen and amen and amen because the word says it. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Jesus said it in the Gospels. He says, I chose you. But when we start talking about election and predestination, it produces difficulties in our mind. It, it produces questions like, like, are there people that are not chosen? If we're chosen, does that mean they're not chosen? Is, is there only a select few? Is there only one group of people that can go to heaven? Th this is horrifying to my brain. This is horrifying to my brain. I'm just going to say it up, up front. The thought of coming into this world and knowing there is a heaven and I can't go is horrifying. It's, it's like, what are you talking about? Heaven, there is a place for all who will come to faith in Christ Jesus. For all that will call upon his name. What does the Bible teach? Let's look at three verses. The three verses that, that God says we've been predestined, we've been elected. But let's look at the other side. The Bible teaches um, in Isaiah 45, 22. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Who, according to Isaiah 45, 22, who is the invitation to? to it says right there in the, in the scripture, to all the ends of the earth. To all the ends of the earth. That's, this is Old Testament. This is 700 years before Christ. Uh, speaking through Isaiah, that to all people. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Can't phrase it any other way. Let's look at the next one, John 3, 16. We love this verse. It's one of my favorites. should be one of yours too. It says, For God so loved a select few that he gave his only begotten son that if a select few will believe in him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Is that what it says? No. No. And if you've got a King James Bible, which I love, it's, it uses the phrase, whosoever. I love that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, I read out of NASB, but the King James, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for all men, but they must appropriate that by putting their faith and trust in Christ. It's the Isaiah 45, 22, the invitation goes out to the ends of the earth, it says. Um, John 3, 16 says, whosoever will come. And this one is a, is a really powerful verse, the third one up there. 1 John 2, 2, John speaking says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That means he is the payment 
He is what brings peace between a sinner and God, um, between a sinner and a holy God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He made salvation available to every human being that will call upon his name. No one, here's my point, no one can use the doctrine of election to not be saved. No one can say, well, I'm not part of the elect. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You can't use the doctrine of election and predestination to, as an excuse, well, I'm not predestined, I'm not elected. When the, when the scriptures clearly invite all men and women to come to the cross. How do you know if you're predestined? Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're predestined. Amen. Okay? <laughs> Turn, give your heart to him, and, and you're in. You're in. There, there's, uh, there's room for all at the cross, but they must come by faith. They must come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to be biblical, if you're going to be biblical on this subject, you've got to hold on to both. You've got to hold on to both because both are in the Bible. One of the greatest um, Calvinist teachers today, who I, I so respect him and I listen to him on a regular basis, is John MacArthur. He, he's, he's very Calvinist. And I so, I'm so thankful for his teaching. But I went and I looked up what he had to say on the subject. And this is what he said. He said, there are, John MacArthur explained it this way. He says, there are two parallel themes that run through the New Testament that we see. We see God's sovereignty and we see man's responsibility. They're both there. They're both there. So if you go die hard left, five point Calvinists, it's like you're, 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 you're in the ditch on the left. If you go diehard Arminian, you're in the ditch on the right. But if you hold both of them together, as the scripture teaches, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the, the scripture teaches. We should believe both. We should believe both because both are in the Bible. You know, I, I see these arguments, and I see these disagreements, and I see these great godly men sparring one another. And they're using predestination versus an election versus uh, Joshua 24, 14. As for me and my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. We see, you see both, and you got to hold them in tension. you got to hold them together. In the early church, there was almost a split. In the first two centuries of the church, there was almost a, a, a church split. There was one group that says, when Jesus was on earth, he was fully God. The other group was like, no, when Jesus on earth, was on earth, he was fully man. And they almost split over the issue. When the fact, the truth of the matter, according to scripture, they were both correct. They were both right. He was 100% God, 100% man. Theologians throw this word out there called the hypostatic union, but he was 100% God, he was 100% man. Does this still pose a difficulty in your mind? If it does, welcome to the club. <laughs> welcome to the club. We're talking about God. We're talking about God. We, we can't bring him down to human terms and, and put him in our scientific boxes. We're talking about the one who dwells in eternity, who controls everything. But we see in the scriptures, we see this beautiful doctrine 
of predestination and election. And what it should do is it should bring joy and security to your heart, knowing that you're in the Father's hands. He chose you before the foundation of the world, and, and you are safe and secure in him. And ain't nothing, nothing going to thwart his plans. Should bring great joy instead of bringing all these arguments and disagreements. Skip Heisick, Calvary Chapel, I think, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, he says this. You're going down the corridor of life, and all of us here are. You're going down the corridor of life. You come up to a door, and that door says, whosoever may enter, come on in. Okay, I'm, I'm invited. Whosoever may come in, I'll go in. They go in the door, and they find this big old banquet feast and all this food, and they're just mesmerized at the beauty of the room. And then all of a sudden, the door shuts. They turn behind, and it says, chosen before the foundation. That's what it's like. That's what it's like. Whosoever may come can come and put their trust in Christ. And at the same time, in the same hand, in the same belief, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said on this subject. Charles Spurgeon said, God certainly chose me before the foundation of the world because he never would have chosen me after I was born. <laughs> never, he, Charles Spurgeon saw his life was such a wreck and was such a mess that when he came to this passage, he says, oh, thank you, Lord. You chose me before the foundation of the world. Despite all my my wretchedness, despite all my failings, you chose me before the foundation of the world, and it brought great comfort to his heart, as, it, as well as it should ours. Amen? Amen. So, um, Calvinism, Arminianism, the, the, if you get one of our Calvary Chapel booklets it, in the back of the sanctuary, information on our church, it, it'll, it, there's a question in there that we try to answer. It's questions about the church. It says, are you Calvinist or Arminian? And we put it in there in that, in that booklet. We says, we are neither Calvinist nor Arminian. We firmly, here's what I'm getting at. We firmly adhere and hold to the sovereignty of God. Because he is sovereign. And he can do as he pleases. And, we, and he doesn't answer to us. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. But anyway, we firmly hold to the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. We avoid any theological system that tries to divide or, or tries to pit one against the other when we see both of them in Scripture. All right. So there is the first and greatest treasure of being in Christ is knowing that you are chosen. Number two, the greatest treasure of being in Christ, I believe is found in verse 6, and is this, you have experienced grace. That's, the, that's number two. The greatest treasure of you being in Christ is you as a believer in Jesus, have experienced grace. What an amazing thought. What an amazing truth. I, I believe verse 6 um, is Paul's rendition of amazing grace. You know, amazing grace was just written a couple hundred years ago. But if it had been written back then, it would have came off of verse 6. Look at verse 6. Paul says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved Grace, God's unmerited favor, a free gift to us. And you and I, through faith in Christ Jesus, you have experienced God's grace. God's favor 
God's favor has come upon your life because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have it. You possess it. If you don't have it, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and experience God's transforming grace. Now, salvation is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift to us. And it didn't cost us anything, but it cost the Father greatly. It it cost the Father greatly. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, here it is, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It cost the Father his beloved Son, Jesus. Jesus is the beloved. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the beloved of the saints. We love him and we we praise him and we worship him for all he's done. But he's also the beloved of the Father. He, he is the beloved of the Father that was with the Father from all eternity. That sent him down here to save us. It, he, he, he bestows this grace on us, verse 6, freely through the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. So number two, you've experienced grace. This is what people need more than anything. They need to experience the grace of God and the joy of knowing him. Let's continue. Verse 7. Verse 7, we'll see number 3. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, part of verse 8, which he lavished on us. Number 3, the the treasure of, of being in Christ Him being the greatest treasure is this, because you have been purchased. You have been purchased, not with gold, not with silver, not with money, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And his blood at Calvary that he shed on that cross, it purchases us. It says we have redemption. That word redemption is a word of, of being purchased. Being purchased. There was an exchange that took place. Jesus shed his blood, paid the price so that he, we could come to him and be forgiven through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, the greatest thing man needs today. The greatest thing women need today, more than anything in this world, what people need is to know and understand forgiveness. And our Bible paints this beautiful, glorious picture of how to be forgiven freely, freely. If you go out, if you, if you go out and um, study all the major world religions, Christianity stands alone as the one that offers it by grace through faith. It's a free gift. All the other major world religions, they're, they're, they are what we call a works-based righteousness. You do, 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 you, a bunch of do's and you get this. But in Christianity, it's not do, do, do. It's done, done, done by the work of Christ. And then it says, according to the riches of his grace. Well, let's read part of verse 8 too. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. It's a a beautiful picture of, of just an alabaster jar of oil just being poured over you and just completely consuming you. That's what he's done with grace, the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And God lavishes his grace on us when we receive 
Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And he chose to do that before the foundation of the world because you chose to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Halfway through verse 8, he says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summoning up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. My friend, there is a plan and a purpose for you as a believer. There is a plan and a purpose for you in this life. You are not wandering aimlessly. You're not going through life blindfolded, not knowing where you're going, what you're doing. There is a plan and a purpose. And the fourth blessing, the fourth reason Jesus is the greatest treasure is this. You will take part. You will take part in the greatest event known to mankind. And it's called the kingdom. It's called the kingdom. Now, we, we've experienced a partial of the kingdom through the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling inside of us and giving us righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We've experienced that part of the kingdom now. But, man, there's, there's coming something even bigger that you're going to be a part of as a believer in Jesus. And that is this. Hist, history and time are marching towards one great event. This is the next prophetic event on God's calendar. And that is called the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where Christ will come down. And the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive shall be caught up. And we will go to a place called heaven. He will capture, he will rapture us from this earth. We will spend seven years with him in heaven while the earth goes through the book of Revelations. We call it the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And basically what that is, uh, Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3 talks about the church, the church, the church, the church. In Revelations 4, 1 to Revelations chapter 20, there is no mention of the church. There's no mention of Christians. In that time period, God is turning his attention back to the nation of Israel. And he's going to fulfill the promises that was promised to them that we see in Romans uh, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. But anyway, going back to us taking part in the greatest event, at the end of that great tribulation, Christ is coming back. For according to um, Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7, he's coming back for a 1,000-year millennial reign where righteousness is going to rule the earth. The Bible talks about, says the lamb is going to lay with the lion. The children are going to play with the vipers. It's where righteousness is going to rule. And we, as believers in Christ, will get to partake in this kingdom. I know this is big thoughts, okay? I know this is like, whoa, Pastor David, you're, 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 that's a lot of information. And that's a lot to process. But we are going to do a study here at Calvary Chapel in the near future on eschatology. Eschatology is things to come, the rapture, the great tribulation, the millennial reign, Israel becoming a nation. We're going to study and look at those things. But in the meantime, we have the rest of the New Testament telling us that we are going to get to partake in this coming kingdom. Look at verse 10. He says, 
And this is where, where he's referencing it. Um, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And then he puts the word, that is, the summoning up of all things in Christ. In this future kingdom, it will be a theocracy. It will not be a democracy. It will be ruled and reigned, and, in, and he'll be in total sovereign control of his kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're in the process. That's where, that's where time is heading to for believers. We're heading towards this great and awesome and glorious kingdom. I don't know about you, man. That, weighs, that outweighs anything <laughs> that, that, that happens in this life. Those are big thoughts for little minds that we can't fully grasp at times. But that's what makes Christianity, that, that's what makes being a believer such a glorious and beautiful thing. And, and such a treasure is, is this coming kingdom where things will be, it says, the summoning up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. He rules. He reigns. And then it says, um, in him, in verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Do you see the poignant phrases in the words in verse 11? It says, it says we have obtained an inheritance. It uses the word predestination again, according to his purpose, his counsel, his will. What's he talking about in verse 11? He's talking about the sovereignty of God. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, the election, the predestination. When we rightly understand those doctrines and we believe as the scripture says, this is what it does in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. It lets God be God because he is sovereign. And as I said a while ago, he will do as he pleases and he does not answer to man all we do is submit and say yes Lord I, as, as Mary said in her Magnificat she said be it unto me according to your word he is sovereign verse 11 he, they're talking God's sovereignty verse 12 actually we'll go verses 12 through 14 he says uh, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Let me just say this. God delights in us. God delights in you. Do you know that? You need to understand that. God delights in you being a believer and trusting in him. He delights in you. He delights in his children. You know, we, we use that phrase a lot. You know, God wants to have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. He, he delights in you. We are to the praise and for his glory. We are to honor and glorify him. And he delights in our relationship. He's not this big old mean, ready to stomp you out. God up in heaven hits you like a fly swatter, smash you like a bug. But he wants to have a loving relationship. Now, you have a responsibility well, I have a responsibility that as we live out this life and we live for Christ, that when we, when we break his commandments and we sin against him and we go astray, we bring it to his throne of grace. But at the end of the day, God delights in you. 
as a believer in Jesus Christ. You are his child. Some of us can relate in how um, we feel towards our children. I, I, I don't know of anything that my kids could do that would cause me to not love them. I don't, I don't think there's anything. Uh, I, I, and as you would you, with your children, no matter what they do, no matter what choices they make, no matter where they go, you might be disappointed, but you will always love your children. God has put that in us because I believe it reflects his love for his children. And we need to be reminded of that, the great and magnificent love of God and the fact that he delights in you. He delights in you when you trust in him. Verse 13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We see the order of salvation in verse 13. It says, number one, you hear the message of truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hear the gospel of salvation. Then the next part of verse 13, it says you believe. In other words, you accept him, you receive him, you believe what his word says about him, and you put your trust in him. And then it says you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit comes down and dwells inside of you. In verse 14, he's continuing, in verse 14, he's continuing the thought of the Holy Spirit. He says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Number five, the greatest treasure of being in Christ is this. We have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a physical body, but there's a spiritual person inside of you, your spirit, okay? But when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells in that immaterial uh, part of you. And he is the greatest treasure. In, in verses 13 and 14, it says uh, three things about the Holy Spirit there. One, it says he's the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the promise of Jesus. The promise from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell and stay inside of you. Well, before I say stay, that the Holy Spirit would come and live inside of you. Okay? In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit he comes, he goes. He comes, he goes. He anoints kings, then he leaves kings. But look at verse 13. It's the Holy Spirit promise. He, is, he says, you are sealed in him. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you through being a Christian will be with you forever. In verse 14, he's given as a pledge of our inheritance. He, he's the stamp. He's the down payment. He is the um, one, this, the, the foretaste of, of the things to come. What greater treasure can you find on this earth than what we just read? The greatest treasure is Christ. And, man, I, I, I will lead the way in talking about how, and how guilty I have 
and my, I've been serving the Lord now for about 25 or 26 years, and I have gone through seasons in life where my heart wanders. My heart wanders. Things pull at my heart. Could be job, could be work, could be whole, whole numerous amount of things. That put, could be sin, disobedience, rebellion. They've tugged in my heart. And like a hard-headed child, I follow them. Only to come back to my senses to know this, that the greatest treasure is Christ. There they are. That's what I present to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You are chosen. You've experienced grace. You've been purchased. Man, the best is yet to come, okay? The best is yet to come as a Christian. You ain't seen nothing yet. I heard that from one movie. I forgot who, who said it, but you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. And finally, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I just pray, Lord, that every believer here this morning will be encouraged and challenged by your word. Lord, to treasure you above all. For you to be at the centerpiece of their heart. Lord, let these points founded in your word encourage them to find you as the greatest treasure. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray, Lord. Do your work in our hearts. Capture our hearts this morning and let us reflect on these things. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen.